0: This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. Emma Espiner is the definition of a high achiever. A well-known columnist, political commentator, and in the throes of a successful high-level career as an executive recruiter, she made the decision in her 30s to drastically shift careers and retrain as a doctor. She's talking here in 2023, about her memoir. It's a great lesson, this one. It's honest and revealing. Hope you enjoy it. Emma Espiner, who vulgar papas to Ngati Tugorehe and Ngati Pro has written a memoir called There's a Cure for This. After a childhood she describes as being raised in a purple lesbian state house. It was social activism, motherhood, radical career change at the age of 30. That came before motherhood, actually. And now a surgical registrar at Middlemore Hospital, Dr Emma Espiner is dedicated to improving Maori health outcomes. She's an award-winning columnist. You may already know her by her work. And also uh, a podcast which was called Getting Better year in the life of a Māori medical student. And uh, she is appearing at the Auckland Writers' Festival on May the 19th. And she's with me now Tinakwe. Tēnākwe. You know, there was a novel about 20 years ago called I Don't Know How She Does It. I don't know whether you ever read it. It was by Alison Pearson. It was very funny, but also, you know, kind of tragic. And it was about the dilemma of working motherhood. But the... Heroin of that mm. had nothing on you. Nothing. You decided to be a doctor when you were pregnant. Please tell me why.
1: Well, pregnancy, you know, it's a kind of madness. Oh,
0: does <laughs> the head in, right?
1: Yep, okay. <laughs> it does. Um, I wasn't one of those women that loved being pregnant and um, just got sort of increasingly grumpy and decided that I hated my job. And, you know, so maybe it was just what a kind was of madness. What was your job? And- and now I have to stick with it. It's too late to change again. Um, so I was working in executive recruitment, and I and I loved the people that I worked with and had great bosses. But, um, you know, it was appointing um, chief executives and, you know, um, kind of C-suite type people into jobs. And that was a lot of fun um, and good kind of networking and gossiping about, you know, what's happening in the business world. But it wasn't really... It wasn't really soul food for me. I didn't really feel like I was helping anyone that needed to be helped.
0: Here is an excerpt from your book. It says, None of my friends dared to have an opinion to my face. I was earning <laughs> $110,000 a year. We had just bought a house in Auckland. We were about to have a baby. And I was suggesting to my husband, Guy on Espinet that I spent six years not earning anything at all for a career gamble <laughs> that showed absolutely zero chance of paying off.
1: You'd yeah. make
0: a great Madness. doctor, <laughs> was all he said. Now, he deserves a great yeah. deal of credit for that, as do you.
1: Mm, mm, absolutely. Although you, and were, it's, um...
0: you were the cracker's one and he was the saint.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right, yeah, no. And, um, yeah, and I really do want to acknowledge him for that because um, – it's interesting when you make a really dramatic decision like that in your life, um, people come up and talk to you about it, um, but they're often talking about their own aspirations or what they wish they might have done or what have you. And so I had a few people who said, oh, I wish I could have... I would have loved to have gone to medical school or have loved to have been a doctor, but, you know, we couldn't do it financially or we couldn't, you know, um, didn't have the support or what have you. So, um, yeah, that's, that was a really important part of why I was able to do this.
0: And then... With a young child, you were a medical student and a columnist and a TV commentator.
1: Yeah, um, I'm an active relaxer.
0: Do you ever relax?
1: <laughs> no, look, my therapist is concerned about that. Um, but you know, it's a, you know, everyone needs to have goals and things to work on. So that's 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 mine. But I think you know, in all seriousness, the The job itself and training to be a doctor is so intense that for me I felt like anything else that I did outside of work would need kind of a corresponding intensity. And so developing that writing career, it's a kind of mixed-up logic, but it did work for me. So It was was an equal and opposite kind of intensity. Yeah,
0: yeah. So any any kind of completely different thing was a break. Mm.
1: Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, and it needed to be something really demanding because – you know, the, the the job and the study is so all-consuming that it's very easy for that to completely become your life. It's very,
0: I mean, it's extraordinarily um, sort of precarious and tense. I know this because I'm watching Shortland Street at the moment. But yes. all, all <laughs> the time you feel, you know, you're not going to get through this bit and you're not going to get through that bit. Mm. And you say yeah. in the book that you decided to be a doctor Becoming vulnerable in the face of something you wanted but might not get.
1: Mm.
0: And, and that, coming from someone who knew exactly what they were doing, they were working a job, it wasn't exactly brain-taxing, going mm. into something that you could fail at radically and publicly. Was a very yeah. bold move, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, and I guess for me, I just thought, well, I've only got one life, you know, and I would never forgive myself for not, um, yeah, for not being brave at that time. Um, but it was terrifying, and I still, I still remember sitting at. Um, I was doing some part-time admin work for um, my mum, who worked for the Department of Conservation, when I was waiting for the acceptance letters to come in or rejection letters. As it were, and I just remember that moment sitting at this computer and re- refreshing my university um, email login, and it was just, yeah, there were so many um, really scary. Is this or is this not going to happen? Moments, um, and they don't stop, which I think is the the great, <laughs> the most devastating thing about it is because you get, you know, you get into the job, and then suddenly you decide to specialise, and then there's all these other ways that you could fail.
0: <laughs> what What will you end up? doing I mean you're a you're a surgical registrar at the moment what mm. what will you be when you have finished with the process
1: well back back to that potential for failure so I've got about 60 hoops to jump through before I can consider getting on to surgical training so that's the next step um and then there's sort of seven to ten years more after this um, <laughs> and ideally I'd be a general surgeon which is what I've always wanted to do since, which
0: is being um, able to operate on anything you want
1: <laughs> well I mean there's there's an entire debate about what that actually means these days but yeah kind of <laughs> I've just come back from a surgical conference in um, in Adelaide so um, yeah it's it's I hope it came across in the book but that um, medicine is there's somewhere for everyone in medicine, I've found. And whether that's, you know, if you um, don't like being around people or you absolutely love it all the time or you only like people when they're asleep, so you do, you know, anaesthetics, like there's there's a group of people for you. And, uh, yeah, surgery just always felt like, yeah, my family in medicine. Surgery felt like your family? mm. And it's quite, um, you know, work-life balance is one of these things that we're always kind of banging on about people achieving in medicine. But I think um, the nature of the job means that you do have to have kind of a family around you when you're there because it's so intense and stressful and the hours, I mean, you see them more than you see your family. Yeah. Um, and so it does, you do have to build those relationships. Does it Or need, I do, anyway. I mean, does, it, yeah.
0: does it need to be so inhumane, those hours, those incredibly dysfunctional shifts
1: Yeah it's really difficult because there is um, there is a point at which um, when you reduce the hours too much um, in the system that we have there, and you increase the number of handovers so between different teams and different um, people coming in and out of shifts that there's a risk to patient safety so um, I, I do understand um, an element of that, that kind of rostering, because you do you do see it in the workplace. You know, you have um, when you're having to hand over the care of a patient who's been really unwell, and three or four people have their hands on it. Things get missed, and um, I hadn't and thought risk. of it so, that way.
0: I mean, I thought about mm, the risk to patient safety of somebody who's absolutely exhausted.
1: Yes, yeah, and that's it too. You know, it's that um, it's that uh, what you know the the equivalent of being drunk after being you know, yeah. working for how many hours. And I mean we just this 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 year actually I was driving home with um my friend Karis after doing the Saturday ward round. So you you know like you work during the week and you have all sorts of hours and then often you have to come in and do a um an unpaid ward round on Saturday. And her and I were driving back and a truck crashed into us out of nowhere and totaled my car. Oh. <laughs> and it was just one of those <laughs> one of those moments you're kind of being shunted down the motorway <gasps> thinking we Just looked at each other and we're like, This is this is great, you know, like this is what I <laughs> This is great, <laughs> <laughs> but not your fault, but, not not our fault. But huh? it was one of those moments where I thought, you know, because I had been, I, I think I'd done a long day the day before, um, and I was pretty tired, but it was completely not our fault. This guy, you know, just kind of blindsided us, but um,
0: yeah, were you both all right, if I,
1: if, both all right. Yes, the driver was more shaken than us, um, oh. and yeah, my car was written off, but so that was um, sort of a helpful challenge, um, <laughs> character building. Um, yeah, but yeah, I did. I did think had I been more tired, or if it had been after a night shift, you know, my my responses might have been less quick and could have been more badly hurt.
0: Uh, you went to medical mm. school to train to be not a doctor, but a Maori doctor. Yeah. Um, mm. But as you said before, you are still part of a system which is racist. Mm. Um, Yeah. You went in as part of the Maori and Pacific Admissions Scheme and you describe in your book in very strong words how racist people can be when they Mm. assume the special treatment that you got under that. So please explain the scheme to us.
1: Yeah, so Auckland and Otago universities have slightly different um, affirmative action or social justice interventions in this to try and improve the medical workforce, um, or at least approach proportionality, That so that we have a workforce that serves the population. Um, mm-hmm. At Auckland, um, essentially you have to meet the same academic threshold. There's a baseline academic threshold. Um, and then if you Papa, Māori or Pacifica, then you go through a separate interview process um, and have a kind of different... You still do the same interview process that you do for that the, the, um, the students going through other pathways do, but then you have another one. Um, and then there are a certain number of spots available. Um, always important to point out that there are um, other pathways for the likes of graduate students, students from rural entry. Um, you know, so it's always the Martin Pacific um, entry pathway that's singled out, but we have interventions for other underrepresented groups as well. Um, that for some reason, you know, it never comes up in the media.
0: So, on the other hand, every <laughs> other year there is, you mm. say, a campaign to discredit that kind of social intervention, special treatment for Māori and Pacifica, or people who Mm. believe you got the questions in advance when the exams came around.
1: Yeah. And the reality is, I mean, it's so hard to, like, you know, I explained the amount of years it would take me if I am successful in pursuing general surgery as a career. So that's, um, you know, 10 to 14 years kind of from the start of medical school. And that you think about that, lead-in time for trying to transform the workforce. Um, It's an incredibly long amount of time and um, really hard to shift the dial when we're currently, so 4% of doctors, roughly, are Māori at the moment. Um, So we're not actually even sort of approaching where we need to be. I think at the moment we've got proportionality with the population and the medical school cohorts, but that will take a long time to fix. You...
0: Mentioned your experience with Kiora um, Ngatiwai, mm. which sounds like a dream, really. I mean, for years and years, everybody's been talking about, in every sort of area of life, joining the dots, joining the dots. And nobody ever even, <laughs> nobody can find the dots, never mind join them. But, <laughs> but in this, you've seen that happen, have you not? mm
1: Thank you for thank you for noticing that. Um, that was what I really wanted to convey, and and it's also this kind of um, my conflict around uh, you know having tifatu order and takaifi order the national health bodies when we know that um, for Māori in particular, and probably Pākehā as well actually, because a lot of these things cross over. But for Māori, it's those um, the deep connection to the community and that understanding and building interventions that are specific to location and, and you know, whānau and hāpuri, um that really work. So it's kind of, you know, um, while I think the potential for Te order is great and having that overarching Māori Health Authority, um, we really still need to find ways to maintain that um you know, the manner of people in their communities and because that's been the whole issue, right? Is that we haven't given people enough autonomy to design the interventions or even just give them the money to do what they know needs to be done. Um, and so that was what Kiurang Atiwai was so good for. Um, because you can just see everything present. Um, you know, when someone turns up, whatever problem they bring, there's someone that's willing and empowered to help.
0: Can it only work in a in a relatively small community or a small population?
1: Yeah, um, and but that's the point, I guess, really. So right. you, um, yeah, yeah, and that, I think you know there are parts of. Um, Tifato wha- order, where you're talking about, you know, lo- localities and kind of things like that that might be in the works. But it's just, yeah, really preserving and empowering those communities to to do what needs to be done and giving them a role. And you know, there there are things that will need to be remain within um, national and kind of hospital um, jurisdiction. But you know, we should we shouldn't have to be finding hard to reach people all the time. That we know we should have these communities embedded within our you know, our governance structures within our leadership so that when it comes time to do you know, something like COVID vaccines, we don't have to scramble to find people. We already know them, we already have them in our you know, in our little okay. head. This
0: is how you describe curing The nurses, community health workers, smoking cessation coordinator, social worker, healthy homes coordinator, rheumatic fever prevention team, administrators, mm. cardiac and cancer specialists, all share in the collective work of improving the well-being of this community this is carmel in fangane their mahi is a common sense solution a tight canvas spread below the high wire of deprivation and need i mean it seems you know your heart kind of thrills to that can it be replicated around the country?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this is this is kind of the interesting thing about it, because when you present something like that, you think, wow, that's really logical. And um, I actually I had a, a meeting with a, um, a new surgeon um, at Middlemore recently talking about some equity project that he wants to do. And he's come from the States. And it was really interesting getting his perspective on the barriers to equity in New Zealand he was just sort of saying this just seems really logical to put care where it's most needed and you know it's always really refreshing to hear that because you kind of think you know that this these kind of attitudes are really hard to shift or really um difficult for people to understand oh, yes absolutely that's great um but what I would say about is it can you know is it scalable and can it be replicated elsewhere the thing about Kiorangatewa at least when I was there is that um the, a significant proportion of administration time was spent on um, applying for contracts, applying for contract renewals, auditing data, and we know um, that Māori health organisations have a greater audit compliance um, burden than non-Māori. That's just, you know, another part of the kind of system that we have um designed um so you know you think about that so if your contracts are only a year in advance and you're having to you know spend a ridiculous amount of time doing the paperwork for that how are you then able to put in a strategy for five 10 15 20 years for the well-being of whānau? so that that kind of you know that are all these little bits in the system that are designed to um, prevent us from doing what we need to be able, need to be able to do and then also not even build in the sustainability for those interventions um over the longer term, which is so counter to the way that Māori work, you know, like it's about, you know, the next generation and actually being able to plan for that. But, you know, we're limited to these kind of ridiculous structures.
0: Mm. Is the shortage of doctors in New Zealand that we're constantly lamenting, Um, is it a consequence of people not wanting to be doctors or are we limiting the numbers of people who can train to be doctors?
1: Yeah, so the medical student numbers, um, so at, in the universities, they're capped, and they're capped by um, the ministry, or Te you know, Whata now, I guess. Um, so... Why? Yeah. Um, that's a, that's probably above my pay grade in terms of the various political reasons why. I mean, there's people have put forward arguments about... Um, uh, the pipeline, so there's, you know, how many uh, junior doctor positions you've got and then how many specialist training positions you've got. But it, it does seem to be that kind of circular argument where you present these issues again and again and then everyone just throws up their hands and goes, oh, too hard. You <laughs> know, just leave it as it is. But, you know, there's there's some really concerning trends around workforce because because not only do we have a, um, a population that's ageing, um, uh, we... the um, expectations of the specialist workforce in 10 to 15 years particularly in surgery is around how many hours they work for instance quite different to the generation working at the moment so you might have surgeons right now who are happy to do I don't know 60 hours a week and then but we're looking at people who are saying actually no I don't want to do that um, so not only do we need to um, train more specialists across all fields um, we also need to account for the fact that the ones that we do train might not want to work themselves to death (laughs) in the same way that the current ones do. So there's, yeah, the workforce issue is massive.
0: Right. Somebody has texted to say, um, don't buy into the dehumanising nature of medical training. It doesn't have to be that way. Technology can help maintain patient safety and handovers. Mm. To think otherwise feeds into the myth of the doctor or surgeon as God, which is unhealthy for them and for patients. Do you think there's something in that, you know, we oh, suffer? A, yeah, absolutely. Yeah?
1: Yeah, 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 totally. And um, and there were some really interesting um, talks this week, actually, at the conference um, about the role of AI and which parts of medicine and surgery, um, AI will be able to take that kind of burden off. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I guess... It's in the absence of an intervention right now that could fix those things. Um, I think we do still need to have enough people around and limiting handovers and that sort of thing but um, but I definitely agree, yeah playing into the idea that the yeah the doctor is God or <laughs> the only person that can make those decisions is yeah pretty unhelpful.
0: And thus, I have no way of a graceful segue to. New- <laughs> Your chapter entitled, Don't Plant a Fruit Tree Over Your Uterus. Please explain.
1: <laughs> well, there, there's a pretty difficult um, segue into that. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, there were just lots of strange um, coincidences when I was, you know, retraining. And um, and one of them was that, you know, if our family got diagnosed with um, uh, Lynch syndrome or, HNPCC, which is a um, inherited um, predisposition to bowel cancer, but also um, endometrial cancer. Um, is it the is it same? A... Is
0: it the same mutation
1: for both? Um, so it's a, it's 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 a syndrome. So it's a, a kind of a collection uh-huh. of, um, of mutations that occur together. Um, and the variant that we had, um, yeah, there was an increased risk of endometrial cancer. So mum found out first and then she had a hysterectomy and then um, I thought, well, I might as well do that as well. <laughs> that sounds, I don't mean to laugh, it's, no. not, it's not a funny kind of thing to do, but, it, you know, yeah. You, you pick up in the book, my way of making decisions is kind of quite rapid and, yeah.
0: Did um, you, um, I mean, how long did you think about that?
1: Well, it was, it wasn't like, um, I mean, I, I'd only ever planned to have one child. And so that, that wasn't an issue. Um, and again, the, the work life planning thing came into it cause I thought, well, when am I going to get a, t- a chance to have six weeks off for recovery? I know it's perverse. It's, oh. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. So that, yeah, that was all part of it. Um, yeah and then our whole family you know we do sort of have a very close but slightly mad family um and so we, we thought we'd just you know all bury our uteri with um with nana <laughs> who had died and was interred in the in the uh, catholic cemetery just outside of Takika, which you know well i think
0: ah you I mean, know the
1: cemetery i'm talking about yeah
0: i do i do i do
1: yeah and yeah, I, will, of town.
0: I will Visit it especially now. And remember, yes, yes. you're limp, <laughs> your limp and apologetic uterus, <laughs> as you describe yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it it's quite a radical decision to just have your yeah. uterus out. Could you not have tests on a regular... I mean, you can have your uterus out if you want to, Emma, whatever. But the alternative <laughs> is to have regular tests for, the, for yeah. the cancer?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, there were um, up to a certain age, and I can't remember what it is now, but um, basically the um, the genetic counsellor and then the um, obstetrics and gynaecology specialist that I talked to had said, you know, up to about 40 to mid-40, um, you don't have to worry too much, but after that we'll need to be, you know, considering a prophylactic um, a hysterectomy and i was just like well that's not that far away timing wise what am i going to gain in those intervening years um by not doing it um and i'll be older and presumably more stressed from working and maybe let's just do it now so um yeah it does sound a little bit um dramatic but also um i you know, the complications from that kind of operation, if you have, for example, take your ovaries out, is that you can go into early menopause. Um, but because I chose to retain mine, I didn't have that. So those complications weren't a factor, whereas for other people, that's a consideration. So, yeah, I mean, it, it made perfect logical sense for me at the time.
0: And just remind me why I, I shouldn't bury my uterus under a fruit tree in case I have that bright idea <laughs> one day.
1: Yes, so the formaldehyde.
0: huh oh. Okay. Yeah, could could
1: get into yeah, could could get into your avocados. <laughs>
0: um, your mother, Colleen, um, mm. as you describe a Pakeha lesbian, left your father for a woman when you were three. Mm. Activist, mm-hmm. um, uh, larger than life figure. She gets less space in this book than your father, Martian.
1: Why? I think that's an interesting observation because I think she gets more space. Well, the space she gets is you
0: were a cross teenager, you didn't give her much credit, um, but you loved your father and used to like spending time with him a great deal more as a child.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess um, mum and I don't have as much conflict (laughs) so um there wasn't you know a single um, issue to work out with her but she for me she's present across i mean she's you know the book's dedicated to her and and she's present in every um, chapter um and as she is really the constant in my life so um yeah i guess Dad, there were just some specific things um, to reconcile in the the main piece that I wrote about him and our relationship. Um, You know, just those things that you kind of um, have to figure out as you get older and then you have your own child and you look at the way they are interacting with the world and the people and family around them. Um, And that's kind of, you know, the stimulus for all of this is Nico because you're thinking have to make sense of the world, to explain it to her.
0: And do you think this book will explain it to her?
1: Probably not, because she's got no interest in, in anything that, I, that that either I or her father does. <laughs> she doesn't want to be a journalist or a doctor. What um, does she want to be? Um, I think the last time I checked, she wanted to be a TikTok star, which I hope to dissuade her from. Yeah. Um, uh, well. <laughs> but, you know... That, that kind of benign disinterest as a parent worked for me. My mum and dad were just sort of like, as long as you're happy, so maybe I'll just take that approach with her and, um, and hope for the best. <laughs> That's all we can do. That's all we can do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, lots, of, uh, lots of very nice texts coming in, um, full of admiration and love for you. And it's been lovely to talk to you. Oh, thank you, Ken. Dr. Emma Espiner, her memoir is called There's a Cure for This.